0: Thanks, Jim. All right, a lot of big changes going on today. New deacons, uh, title change. I was almost at year six as preaching minister, and now I'm starting over at uh, day one as a new position. Okay. Uh, thanks, Jim, for leading us in our song service today. The song that we, we were just singing, you know the title of it, anybody? Thomas's song. So we're studying the 12 Apostles. Uh, we're trying to take it one by one, but a few of the apostles were combining together. Today, can you guess which apostle we're going to study? Thomas. Yeah. Okay. So let's go ahead and get this out of the way. If you know anything about the apostle Thomas, he has a nickname. What do most people call Thomas? Thomas. Doubting Thomas. That's right. Okay. Let's go ahead and jump into the scripture. I'm going to start in, in John chapter 20. I'm going to go ahead and read some from John 20, and then we'll go back to John 11 and 14. So open your Bibles there if you'd like. John chapter 20, starting in verse 24. But Thomas, who was called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. So Jesus has already appeared to his apostles. Thomas was a no-show. He wasn't around. He missed it. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord, but he said to them, unless I see the mark of the nails in his hands and put my finger in the mark of the nails and my hand in his side, I will not believe. Just quickly, let me tell you what's going on here. Thomas is saying, unless I have tangible proof, I will not believe that Jesus resurrected. He has to see it for himself. He has to touch Jesus. He's not going to base it on the witness of the apostles. Verse 26, a week later, his disciples were again in the house, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Reach out your hand and put it my side. Do not doubt, but believe. Now I wanted to start with that passage because that's where Thomas gets his nickname from, Doubting Thomas. He doesn't believe the witness of the apostles, and Jesus says, Thomas, stop doubting, but believe. That's why, for who knows how many centuries now, Thomas has earned this nickname of Doubting Thomas. Now, for each of these apostles that we've talked about, I think we can kind of connect with them. Maybe not all 12 of the apostles, but in some way, we've, we've been able to connect with some of the apostles. And maybe you can connect with Thomas here, at least with his nickname if you've ever struggled with doubt of any form. Some of you may not. Some of you have been through deep battles with doubt. Some of you have been through different stages of your faith where you've struggled with doubt in one way or another. My first real bout with doubt came when I took a world religions class many years ago. On the first day of our class, our professor stood up And he said, okay, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He is God in the flesh. He came to this earth. He died on a cross. He was buried in a tomb. Three days later, he resurrected. He ascended to heaven, and he is coming back. That was his statement of faith. And he said, but you won't hear me say that the rest of this semester. And he said, because we study these world religions, major and minor religions, he said, we're not trying to prove them wrong. We're not trying to say here's where they're wrong, here's where we're right. He wanted to teach the class from a a non-biased perspective as, as much as he could. So for the next four months, we studied all these world religions, their worldview, what they believe, who they worship, what they worship, where they worship. And somewhere during that semester, I found myself a little bit spiritually numb because I started questioning my own belief. And the thought that kept reoccurring in my mind was, do I just believe what I believe because it's convenient for me? I was raised in the Bible Belt. I was raised in a town where there's a church on every corner of town, and and maybe the Christian influence has dwindled a little bit, but I was raised in a Christian family. We went to church every Sunday. Do I believe because it's convenient to believe? And I started thinking, is somebody a Hindu because it's convenient for them to be a Hindu? That's where they grow up, in a Hindu family, in a a Hindu country, you know, however you would want to describe that. Do we just believe what we believe because it's convenient for us? So during that semester, I really started struggling with some doubt, doubting what I believed and why I believed it. But I can tell you that I believe God met me in that doubt. It's almost like God welcomed it. And by the end of the class, before the summer started, My faith had been strengthened beyond what it was before I started struggling with the doubt. Now, how God helped me, it's hard to explain. It could be because, you know, somehow supernaturally through His Holy Spirit, God met me there, and He strengthened me. He reassured me of faith in Him. Uh, It could be a combination of that and some of the books and resources that I was studying as I was seeking answers. It could be the people that God placed in my life that I respect that I was able to have honest conversations with during that time and say, here's what I'm struggling with. It could be a combination of all of that, but somehow, someway, through the doubt, my faith was strengthened. I do believe that Jesus is the Son of God, that He did die on a cross, that He was buried in a tomb, but He did resurrect, and He ascended to heaven, and He's coming back someday. I do believe that with all my heart, but I had to go through this time that's like going through the valley of the shadow of death with my own faith. And there's been different times throughout my adult life where a little bit of doubt has crept in. There's a dad in Mark chapter 9, and I won't, we're not going to get into the whole context of Mark 9, but in Mark 9, 24, the dad says to Jesus, I do believe, but help my unbelief. Through time, that's become known as the doubter's prayer. This dad is a mixture of both faith and doubt, and he says to Jesus, look, I believe. But there's a little bit of unbelief, so please help that. If you've ever struggled with doubt, or you've gone through these different periods of doubt, maybe you can have some sympathy or patience with others who struggle with doubt. A a book in the Bible in the New Testament we don't talk about very often is the book of Jude. Jude is one chapter, and in Jude chapter 1 and verse 22, he says, Be merciful to those who doubt. So maybe you don't struggle with doubt, but there are others who go through periods where they where they struggle with, maybe it's doubt in others, maybe it's doubt in God, maybe it's doubt in the reliability of the Bible. I'm not sure, maybe it's people that are influencing your life. If you are in a place right now where you are struggling with doubt, keep seeking. Don't give up, because I do believe that God meets you in your doubt. Now I say all of that because we're talking about Thomas, what we read from John 20. Thomas is called Doubting Thomas, But there's a chance that maybe we've given him the wrong nickname for the last however many centuries. Because it doesn't seem like Thomas is struggling with doubt as in his belief in God. He obviously believes in God. He's been a follower of Jesus. He believes in Scripture. He believed that God worked through Scripture. So what is it that Thomas doubts? Well, the more I studied the Apostle Thomas, I came across these different sources that referred to Thomas as Thomas the pessimist. Have you ever heard this? So We always call him Doubting Thomas, but Thomas the Pessimist. So I was like, okay, let me go with that for just a minute. What is a pessimist? I mean, I think we would know what a pessimist is, but I went ahead and Googled it just to give you a little bit of a definition of what a pessimist is. And the start of the definition goes like this. A pessimist is somebody who tends to see the worst aspect of things or believe the worst will happen. You know anybody like that? Don't raise your hand. Just think, yes. Are you that person? Maybe you're a pessimist. Uh, the definition goes on and it describes a pessimist as somebody who lacks hope and joy and has distrust and disbelief. Uh, I will, as I've thought about this word pessimism, uh, somebody who's a pessimist, I mean, without going into great detail, I'll tell you some of my close friends have been pessimists, and some of the funniest people I know are pessimists. I have to guard against being a pessimist. But based on that definition, Thomas has a pessimistic faith, a doubting faith. It seems like those two words should not go together. If I were to ask you to define faith, a lot of you might say Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 1. And maybe you could say that's not a definition of faith, that's more of a description of faith, but the Hebrew writer says faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. Now, based on that, compared to the definition of being a pessimist, those two seem like they should not go together. But as we study the Apostle Thomas, uh, I think Thomas serves as a good example of standing in that tension of having faith in God, but it may be struggling with being pessimistic, of having faith in God, but maybe having some doubt. So, there's three main times that Thomas is mentioned in the Gospel of John, and I want to briefly look at all three of those times, starting in John chapter 11. And we'll work our way back to John 20. John, uh, Thomas is mentioned in John chapter 21 briefly, but we won't look at that today. So just John 11, 14, and John 20. Um, I'm not going to read the full context. John 11 is a pretty long chapter. So I'll just read verse 7 and 8, and then verse 16. It says, Then after, he had said, after, after this he had said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. This is Jesus talking. Verse 8, the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now trying to stone you, and you're, going, you're wanting to go there again? Skip down to verse 16. Thomas, who is called the twin, or in Greek it's Didymus, he said to his fellow disciples, let us go that we may die with him. Alright, pause there for a minute. Let me point out a few things. For one, he's Thomas the twin. You Notice that? Uh, he's not doubting Thomas. He's not Thomas the pessimist. When Thomas walked this earth, when he was a disciple of Jesus, his his nickname was the twin. Apparently he had a twin brother or twin sister that we don't know about in Scripture. So really that should be his nickname is Thomas the twin or his name actually means twin. Now the context here in John chapter 11, uh, if you read the whole chapter and you read the whole book of John, really the whole gospel of John, there's several signs that Jesus performs. That's the word that John likes. Jesus is about to perform His greatest sign yet. He's going to bring Lazarus back from the dead. So in John 11, Jesus gets word that Lazarus is sick. He waits a few days, and then He is ready to go and bring Lazarus back from the dead. His disciples don't understand any of this. So when He says, let's go back to Judea, like we read in verse 7 and 8, the disciples respond with, why would we do that? Last time you were there, they tried to kill you. And then when we skip down to verse 16, this is where Thomas very boldly and bravely says, let us go that we may die with him. Now you read that and you may think, wow, Thomas is all in. He's fully committed. He's saying, I'm ready to go die with Jesus. It sounds really brave. In fact, it sounds like something Peter would say, right? You study through the Gospels, who's the one that normally speaks up? It's Peter. But here, it's like Thomas beat Peter too. I wonder if Peter's sitting there thinking, man, he stole my line. I was going to say that. I don't know, but Thomas beats him too. He says, let's go die with Jesus. Now, if you read some authors and you continue with the Thomas the pessimist theme, uh, some people have pointed out that, that it's maybe not, it's kind of brave. There's a little bit of courage, but there's also some pessimism there. It's heroic pessimism because it just depends on how you read it, but it could read like Thomas is saying, Okay, Jesus, we'll go with you because we're committed to following you. But if you go back to Judea, you're going to get killed and you're going to get us killed. That's one way of reading. That's the pessimistic way of reading what Thomas is saying here. Now, if you went with Thomas, doubting Thomas, if I were to say a word about doubt, uh, there's several great resources out there that uh, books, authors, videos you can watch. I'm not, I'm not really in apologetics preacher, but there is a time and place to discuss apologetics, Uh, and there's some great authors that I could point you to, and one of those is a guy named Timothy Keller. He wrote a book called The Reason for God. And in this book, he basically deals with doubt and why people doubt God, and he calls them different barriers to our faith. One of those barriers that some people struggle with when it comes to doubt is whether or not they believe the resurrection could have actually happened. Did Jesus really... Rise from the dead, or did they make it up? And so there's many convincing proofs that we can trust in the resurrection, and just one of those many convincing proofs was that these apostles and the early Christians, early church leaders, were all willing to die for their faith. And one of the things that Timothy Keller and other authors point out is had, Jesus, had they not actually seen the resurrected Jesus, they probably would have stayed behind locked doors and lived the rest of their lives hidden somewhere. But they were empowered by the Holy Spirit and they were bold because they had seen the resurrected Lord. They would not be willing to die for a lie, but they were willing to die. And most of them were martyred for their faith. They were willing to die because they had actually seen the resurrected Jesus. Church history tells us that Thomas eventually went on to India. And some sources say from around A.D. 52 to A.D. 72, Thomas was in India preaching the gospel and planting churches. And around A.D. 72, uh, a group of non-believers confronted Thomas and wanted him to deny his faith in Christ. He refused to do it, and they killed him on that day. They stabbed him with a spear, and there's different legends of how that happened, but we all believe he was martyred in India. Several decades after he makes this statement. so In John 11 and verse 16, he says, let us go that we may die with Him. Now at the time, he might have had some pessimism or doubt mixed in with his courage, but Thomas does eventually die with and for Jesus. Not as Thomas the pessimist, not as doubting Thomas, but as Thomas who has seen the crucified and risen Lord. John 14, the second time that Thomas comes up, uh, this is the night before, if you want to flip over there, you can. I'll read a few verses here in just a second. This is the night before Jesus is going to be crucified. Uh, it's a pretty heavy conversation going on, an intimate conversation that Jesus is having with his disciples. And there's actually some really well-known texts that I think we know, uh, just if you've grown up in church, if you study studied the Bible much, or you've sung some of our hymns through time. Uh, mansion over Hilltop, songs like that are inspired by John 14 in those four, first four verses where Jesus says, I am leaving you, but I'm going to go prepare a place for you. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. So he's saying all this, and in verse 4, Jesus says, and you know the, you know the way to the place where I'm going. Thomas speaks up again. And Thomas says, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, if you're just reading through the Gospel of John, you may not even catch that Thomas is the one who speaks up here. And even if you did catch it, you may think, well, he's just asking a question. The disciples seem to be confused often, so maybe Thomas is just confused, and so he's speaking on behalf of the other apostles. But again, if you take that pessimistic slant on Thomas the pessimist, this is maybe a pessimistic question because he's saying, Jesus, if you're leaving us, that doesn't make sense. What's the point of being separated from you? So maybe you can, you can catch a hint of that pessimistic part of Thomas here as he asks this question, but I'm glad that Thomas asked the question because in verse 6, maybe one of the more well-known statements that Jesus made, the seven I am statements in the Gospel of John, here's a great one right here. Jesus says in response to Thomas's question, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And we know that. We believe that. But if we're going to take the slant or the direction of doubt, again, as Timothy Keller says, there's many barriers to the Christian faith. And one of those is that in our culture today, people value tolerance. And they are bothered by the exclusivity of Christianity. Because they look at... Followers of Jesus and what Jesus taught, and they're like, how could Jesus say he has the only way? There's all these other religions out there. Jesus can't be the only way. So I think of two authors when I think of that barrier, that reason for doubt. One is C.S. Lewis, who famously said that Jesus was either a liar, a lunatic, or he was Lord. Have you ever read that or heard that before? You know, Jesus, some people say Jesus was a good moral teacher. He may not have been Lord, but what C.S. Lewis is saying is, that means he was crazy because he claimed to be one with God. He said he was going to die and come back from the dead. He's either lying about that, or if he really does come back from the dead, that means he is Lord, and we better listen to what he's saying. So I think of that when I think of this barrier to our faith, and I also think of uh, a guy named David Platt. He's a preacher, and he's written a few popular-level books, and one of his books, he tells a story of how he was in Indonesia uh, one day having a conference with other faith leaders. He was talking to a Muslim leader and a Buddhist leader, and they were basically saying, according to David Platt, that all religions are fundamentally the same, only superficially different. So as they were finding this common ground, he was quiet, and finally they looked at him and they said, what do you think? He's representing the Christian faith. And he said, okay, I guess he pulled like a counseling technique on him. And he said, what I hear you saying is, that's what counselors are supposed to say, what I hear you saying is that God is at the top of the mountain, and we're all trying to make it up to the top of that mountain, but we may just take different routes or different paths. And they said, yeah, that's that's a good way of putting it. That's basically what we're saying. Like Each religion is just a different route up the same mountain. And he said, well, what if I told you that God doesn't wait for you to make your way up to Him? God comes down to where we are. And they said, well, that sounds great. And he said, let me introduce you to Jesus. The Word becomes flesh and dwells among us. And Jesus the word who became a human being dies on a cross resurrects and because of that I believe we have to follow what he says and what Jesus says is I am the way the truth and the life nobody comes to the Father except through me and it's because of Thomas's question that we get that great statement the third main time that Thomas comes up in the gospel of John is John 20 which is where we started uh, John chapter 20 and verse 20 through Jesus appears to the apostles. They're scared, apparently. They're behind locked doors. But Jesus appears to them. The locked door is no barrier for Him. And when He appears to His apostles, there's one person missing. Who's the one person missing? Thomas. Thomas the twin. Doubting Thomas. Thomas the pessimist. Where is he? Verse 24, it says... Thomas, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came or when Jesus appeared. So I've always thought about that. Why was Thomas not there? Now, sometimes I will use Thomas as an example, and maybe you've heard me say this before, but if you skip out, you miss out. So Occasionally, we'll have people say, well, I didn't know you taught on that, or I didn't know that event was coming out. I'm saying, it's because you skipped church. You missed out. You skip out, you miss out. But maybe that's not the main point of what's uh, what we read from Thomas's example here. Why is He not there? Maybe it's because He's grieving. He, Jesus is gone. He doesn't fully understand all of this. And, and He's trying to deal with His grief and isolation. And so they come up to Him in verse 25 and they told Him, we've seen the Lord. And this is where Thomas says, unless I see the marks where the nails were in His hands and His side where the spear went through His side and touched those wounds, I will not believe. So again, with the pessimistic theme, Thomas is being a hopeless pessimist here. Or we could call him Doubting Thomas. This is where pessimism and doubt kind of merge together. Unless I see it for myself, I will not believe. Okay, well, Jesus shows back up a week later. And this time Thomas is with them, so good for Thomas. A week later, his disciples were again in the house and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were shut, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Verse 27, Jesus is going to direct His attention to Thomas. And He said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see My hands. Reach out your hand and put it in My side. Do not doubt, but believe. Jesus goes directly to Thomas and He knows where Thomas's doubt lies and He's going to address that head on. Verse 28, Thomas is no longer doubting Thomas or Thomas the pessimist anymore because he says, My Lord and my God. We've got to give Thomas some credit. That's a really strong confession that he's making about the resurrected Lord. My Lord and my God. But then Jesus says something so significant for all of us in verse 29. He says, Have you believed because you have seen Me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet come to believe. In verse 29, do you know who Jesus is talking to here? He's talking to me and He's talking to you. He's talking to anybody who does not have the luxury that Thomas had of being an actual eyewitness of Jesus. And he's saying, blessed are those who don't see me, but they still believe because that's what faith requires. Going back to Hebrews 11.1, faith is being sure of what we hope for and certain of what we do not see. There's a couple of verses in 2 Corinthians where Paul, I'll read 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes this, so we fix our eyes... Not on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And then the next chapter in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, he says, For we live by faith, not by sight. Jesus is asking us today to take that leap of faith, to believe in Him even though we don't see. Because what we see is temporary with our physical eyes. But what is unseen is eternal. And he tells Thomas, for all those that will come after Thomas, blessed are those who have not seen and yet still believe. Jesus asks us to trust in Him. An author that I've really liked over the years is a guy named John Ortberg, and he wrote this book called No Doubt, like K-N-O-W, No Doubt. It deals with the, the tension between faith and doubt, and he has this great quote that I want to share with you. He said, faith requires belief, and believing is what we do with our minds. Faith requires commitment, and committing is what we do with our wills. But faith must also have hope, and hoping is what we do with our hearts. It's all-encompassing. Jesus is asking us to trust Him, to have faith in Him, and to believe in Him with all of our minds, with all of our will, our full commitment, and all of our hearts, with that hope that is in our heart. And I can tell you that I, uh, you know, I mentioned from the beginning, I, I went through a little bout where I struggled with doubt, but my whole life, has been based on belief that Jesus is Lord. And I know the same is true for most of you in this room. So I think about what we do on a Sunday morning. What we're doing right now is we're not just some social club. We're not a self-help group. We are a church family that believes in the crucified and resurrected Lord. And we base our lives on that. So if you can identify with Thomas, maybe you're a pessimist, which when I asked that earlier, several of you kind of laughed, chuckled a little bit. If you are a pessimist and you can identify with that side of Thomas, I want to encourage you to surround yourself with optimistic people. People who have an optimistic faith. We need their influence in our lives. I need it. I told you, I confess, sometimes I can be a pessimist like Thomas. Well, I need to be around people have an undying unending fully committed faith because their faith influences me and if you struggle with doubt if you can identify with thomas and that as i said earlier don't walk away don't become numb keep searching keep wrestling with it keep talking to people that you respect that you can share those doubts with but i believe if you're truly seeking God will meet you in your doubt, and God will continue to reveal Himself to you and strengthen your faith. And in conclusion of the Apostle Thomas, who gives us the opportunity to talk about faith and doubt, something maybe I don't talk about very often, I was thinking about three years ago, I actually preached through parts of John 20 on Easter Sunday. I was standing right here on this stage, and I've mentioned this before, there was about seven or eight people in the audience. That's all that showed up on Easter Sunday 2020 because we were all sheltered at home. And everybody or a lot of people were staying at home during that time. It was a really weird time for us. And I saw on Twitter that a a preacher that I follow put the following statement. He said, the Easter story reminds us that Jesus will pass through walls and show up in the middle of rooms with locked doors. That comes from John 20. The apostles are behind locked doors and Jesus just shows up among them. That locked door is not a barrier for them, but he went on to say, the one door that Jesus will not kick down or go through unless you invite Him in is the door of your heart. At that door, you have to let Him in. But He does stand at the door and knock. I want you to think about that idea. If you haven't let Jesus all the way in or you need to let Him back in, that's your invitation today. He stands at the door and He knocks and He's waiting for you to let Him in. If we can help you find Jesus or rediscover Jesus, please come talk to us this morning. You can come up front. Find one of our shepherds privately if you need to. Let's stand and we'll keep singing.